The world's population has grown to 8 billion people. As a society, how we keep up with the increasing need for electricity while addressing our climate goals is a growing challenge. Renewable energies like wind and solar are part of the solution, but we also need full-time sources of clean power when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. That's where existing and advanced nuclear energy comes in. Nuclear is clean air energy, and it's reliable and available 24-7. Plus, nuclear energy generates thousands of times more power using a fraction of the land that wind and solar would need. Energy Northwest is proud to provide clean, abundant, and reliable energy to help meet our growing needs. Learn more about nuclear energy and its full potential at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, and with me is my co-host and editor of California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. We're here with some of the top stories we've been working on. Uh, Jason, happy belated Memorial Day. How, yes. how are you doing? I'm doing great. I had a good weekend. I went to the Sacramento County Fair yesterday where I was playing some music and my daughter came along. That was fun, but uh, she was a little disappointed she couldn't do any of the rides because her daddy was playing music and then they closed. But no, we had a good one. How about you? Yeah, I had a I had a good Memorial Day, uh, especially the weekend. I, I took my youngest to the Mariners game on mm-hmm. Saturday and she decided that she wants to be, she's six, that uh, she wants to be the first woman to break into the major leagues and nice. uh, to be the youngest player to make it onto the Mariners, you know, made the Mariners roster. So um, I was like, hey, awesome. You got to just practice. <laughs> Let's get started. Came home, uh, started playing catch. Um, wow. She's She's got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. But you know, love that, love that optimism. Uh, yeah, I went to another game on ambitious. Memorial Day though, and saw the Mariners uh, get thrashed by the Yankees. So wow! But all in all, great weekend. Is there any particular position that she wants to play? No, not not right now. Well, she's okay. still you know figuring that out. Yeah, that at six years old, you got to really keep your options open. Yeah, That's, I think safe advice. So, what do you have for us this week? All right. Well, I'm going to be talking about offshore wind in the West and the obstacles to more deployment. I also have coverage from CalCCA, a panel discussion I covered on equity, equality, and the energy transition. And then finally, some more on interconnection delays from Linda Daly-Paulson. And so what do you have going on this week? Well, I've got uh, the Washington, or Washington State deciding to delay Building code updates banning natural gas or really restricting natural gas due to the Ninth Circuit decision regarding the Berkeley ban. And then structural changes that need to be made in Washington to achieve the state's clean energy goals. And last, some big losses incurred by Pacific Core in its first quarter earnings due to the 2020 Labor Day wildfires. Yeesh. Yeah. First, though, I, I got to remind listeners that they have a few more weeks to sign up for our June 22nd, 23rd webinar on Western resource adequacy. 
I'll be moderating one of the panels, really excited about it. So you can find more information on our website, uh, newsdata.com slash C-O-N-F. So the first four uh, letters of conference. So go check it out. Cool. Four more weeks to sign up, June 22nd, 23rd. Uh, in the meantime, what are the obstacles to offshore wind in California, Ooh. Jason? Well, there's a lot, a lot of them. You know, these <laughs> turbines, if you look at them, they're, they're massive. Of course, you have to have floating turbines here on the West Coast because of the way the coastline lays or the shelf. So what happened was California Energy Commission hosted two days of workshops with other agencies to discuss the development of offshore wind panelists uh, talking about various areas of wind energy and some of the hurdles that will need to be jumped and some interesting stuff here if you look at the scale of this undertaking for instance workforce development is a big one uh, also infrastructure build out and some transmission related challenges if you had to guess how tall an offshore turbine might reach what would you think well, uh, I, you know, I've covered some of this stuff, at least yeah. land turbine on, onshore mm -hmm. turbines. I mean, they, they can get up to 600 plus feet. I, yeah. is it taller for offshore? Yeah. 1100 feet above the water surface. Foundations can be 425 feet in every direction and a hundred feet tall. And it's not just the uh, offshore territory. It's the large swaths of land that you need to manufacture and assemble them there's no existing port terminal on the west coast that can currently support and help build out offshore wind there's two port sites the port of humboldt and the port of long beach have been identified we've written about this for a while for manufacturing staging and integration and operation and maintenance of offshore wind farms they're close enough to where the lease sites will be located and have the acreage needed for development Fabrication, staging, and integration require up to 100 acres. Anchoring and mooring needs 10 to 30 acres. And electrical cable layout will take 20 to 30 acres for each turbine. And both of those ports, Humboldt and Long Beach, would require a complete overhaul because they need to be, be able to handle at least 6,000 pounds per square feet of capacity, which is six times what their wharfs are built to handle as far as shipping containers. Um, and the uh, manufacturing I, facilities yeah. for turbine components do not exist yet either. So, uh, is there any sense of how much work it would require to get Humboldt or Long Beach up to, to be able to handle, uh, this, these, these materials, these components? Yeah, I think some of the numbers I was discussing here in terms of, um, the fabrication and staging, I don't know, you know, a lot of work and then you need the workforce to also <laughs> you need to mobilize the human capital to work on these ports which requires a whole level of basically a new generation of workers um and they're talking here about needing to talk to people as early as sixth grade so and really an entire new industry um and yeah just to give an idea of the scale of these things they are huge. Um, so, I, I mean, they don't have to build them that big. I guess not. It's just if they want to build them that big. Yeah. I mean, okay, 1,100 feet. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Yeah. And that's just the turbine itself. You know, you've got 
substations are humongous also. Um, so yeah, I would say the obstacles are many and it's going to take, I don't know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars and all this. Um, so yep, some good reporting there from Ann Ernst. That's, uh, you know, I think the ports thing is a big one, but, uh, you know, jobs, investment, I'm sure there's the, you know, the federal money coming in will help. And, uh, yeah, just some of the challenges we'll see with offshore wind, but a great resource if we can get it. Yeah. It's a good resource if you can get it indeed. Well, uh, coming back up to Washington, Washington state regulators decided last week to delay implementing new building codes requiring heat pumps in many new buildings and discouraging new natural gas hookups. The new new codes had been slated to take effect July 1st, but concerns about uh, the recent recent ruling coming out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturning a similar ban adopted by Berkeley, California, prompted the Washington State Building Code Conference to delay implementing the codes to November 1st. Uh, yeah, opponents of the new natural gas hookup uh, restrictions have really been pushing for this, saying this is overreaching, it's uh, unnecessary, doesn't take into account decarbonization efforts that the natural gas industry is pursuing. Supporters of these bans say those efforts are really don't, have much promise and we need the building codes need to really put in stringent requirements pushing toward uh, pushing new buildings in the building industry toward electrification and away from fossil fuels this yeah. is uh yeah another one of the latest uh, instances of the that ninth circuit court uh ruling rippling out through the industry and that will really have some I think potentially long uh, reaching effects where I guess we're already seeing the effects of this and and causing the state regulators to reconsider, uh, at least reconsider, if not rewrite some of the building codes that uh, they'd been looking at implementing. So just quickly, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court judges found that the ban that Berkeley had enacted violated the Federal Energy Policy and Conservation Act, which uh, preempts the Berkeley Ordinance. Yeah, that's a big one. And um, already seeing the ramifications of that court case. We've seen a a wave of cities in the Northwest and beyond uh, adopting Mm -hmm. these local ordinances, taking action when they have felt like their state legislature and certainly federal, uh, the federal lawmakers have not been moving fast enough Interestingly, we've also seen a uh, pushback from legislators in more conservative states, uh, including Idaho and Montana and the Northwest here, but at least seven across the country that have uh, recently enacted laws stripping local governments, county, city governments from uh, stripping them of the power to enact these bans. Yeah, and I noticed the quote here. SBCC member, that's State Building Code Council, uh, Kajal Anderson said, I've also gone through the Commercial Energy Code and the Residential Energy Code, and there appears to be ways to make them compliant with the recent Berkeley decision without sacrificing the energy performance in a meaningful way. 
this is pretty serious. I think we need to be thoughtful about our response to the Berkeley ruling. So I sort of see that she sees some workarounds for this, but or if that is a female, I'm not sure. Kajal. Um that's yeah, kind of familiar with the council, article. so I I yeah, I'll clear that up. Yeah, I, I spoke to some folks over at the Department of Commerce, the State Department of Commerce. I spoke to them on Friday after this delay had been uh, voted on uh, on last Wednesday. Uh, and they said so the plan is now that it's kind of going to go back to the sort of beginning review of the review process, not in, in terms of the substance at all, but just in terms of reviewing the codes. And they're going to look at ways to get the same end result maybe through just some different uh processes in terms of what the codes are aimed at how they're written etc sure. or they could uh, potentially you know counsel for the state building code council the council as an attorneys uh could say you know this is not a concern let's go ahead with it as as written so we'll see sure. we'll have updates on that uh as as it comes along but in cool. the meantime, uh, you've got you had a really interesting column about equity and equality in the energy industry. Yeah, this is from the CalCCA annual meeting I attended in San Diego. Um, it was a panel discussion, but really one individual spoke uh, at to some length. Eddie Price, chair of the Community Advisory Committee for San Diego Community Power. And um, some real talk from this gentleman. The the crowd was really entertained by him. He used a lot of humor. And uh, here's one quote, which is something that has crossed my mind quite a bit. He said, in my community, energy and climate change is not the most prominent priority in the household. I think it gets down to, well, as he described it, people in his community, which is South San Diego, um, you know, obviously more worried about putting food on the table, dealing with issues at their children's schools. Um, he's been trying to get people in his community interested in environmental and climate change issues. Um, but they basically say, hey, that's your lane. Um, here's another quote. So when these questions are asked in my community, we give very superficial answers because it's not a priority. So we have to learn how to prioritize for our community. He talked about a concept I've been hearing about recently is a difference between equality and equity, equality being equal treatment and equity, more of a concept that recognizing that people from different backgrounds might need different treatment. According to him, uh, equity and equality are two different words. What we're trying to achieve is equality and equity is the path to get there. He is an example of a tree planting program in San Diego where uh, La Jolla gets an equal number of trees to South San Diego. But he pointed out there's already thousands of trees in La Jolla, which is um, an 83% white community. Mr. Price happens to be an African-American. 83% um, white community with some of the highest housing prices in the nation. But he says, you know, that's an example of equal treatment, but really not equity. Um, he also said... He recently attended a meeting with some IOU representatives had formed a committee to address historical inequalities and in environmentalism. He said that sounds really noble, but when he asked them if the utility had addressed its own historical in inequities, he said the room got very quiet. 
So, you know, I think these are sensitive issues. I, I do get this sense, you know, when, when you look at climate change activism um, and people that are concerned with climate change, just in my own experience, you know, they're not, they, they, they tend to be more educated people from more affluent backgrounds where I don't think people down in some of these neighborhoods are focused on climate change, as Mr. Price discussed. Um, but try to address this and um, yeah, how to, how to get people interested in these topics, I think is a thorny question, but there are people out there working on that. He also said, don't call them disadvantaged communities. The people are, are not, or the people are not disadvantaged. The community might be. He suggested the term communities of concern. Quote, I need to know that you're concerned about my community. All those other ways of identifying my community are intellectual. So some good points from him. And it went over very well. And um, I think it made for an interesting column. From, yeah, um, it certainly was. Uh, you know, the, I heard somebody describe equity and equality uh, one time as Quality is saying they're putting everybody at the edge of a pool and saying, all right, you're all going to have a race. You get to start at the same time and whoever gets, you know, makes it to the other side of the pool first wins. Mm -hmm. But maybe one of the people doesn't know how to swim because they grew up in an area that where there are no swimming pools, no opportunities for them to learn. And yeah. it's not really a fair race. So yeah. equity, equality saying, Hey, you all have the same chance because you're all starting at the same time. Right. Equity is saying, you know what, they're not starting from the same place, though. Yeah. Uh, and let's teach that person how to swim and get them as proficient and uh, a swimmer as people they're going up against and then hold the race. Yep. And this obviously applies to many things in society. And um, it's, it's a good way to approach it. And um, I'm glad to see that, you know this is being discussed and it definitely applies to the energy world also. Yeah. And you know, equity was, has been a major part of the policy changes and mandates that have been adopted by Washington uh, state lawmakers up here as the state focuses on decarbonizing its energy grid mm -hmm. and making it a more equitable energy system. So a new report from Washington's Department of Commerce, though, says that while the state has adopted some of the country's most aggressive and ambitious decarbonization goals, it needs to make structural changes in terms of its energy policy and just pushing the industry to make structural changes. That's in the 2023 biennial energy report, and uh, it's the the end mark or the finish line here is the is a, a decarbonized equitable power grid in the state by 2050 and it's uh, they looked at a range of policies really covering everything from uh, transportation buildings energy generation uh, energy burden and found a lot of progress but a lot more uh, changes that need to be made especially in transmission was another Big one here where they said uh, constraints in the bulk power transmission system pose one of the greatest challenges uh, to Washington meeting its energy and climate goals. The, uh, there's, you know, they said the state really has to focus on like this and other issues. But uh, just pointing to this one as an example here, 
that it really has to focus on taking deliberate action and coordinating with neighboring states and working with the industry to really push forward the expansion of transmission capacity to ensure that it can get enough uh, you know, decarbonized zero emission energy into the state. Uh, if it can't do that, then you can write you know the most ambitious goals you want, but you just won't get there. So really interesting read. Lots of, you know, there's like every other page I marked up something like, oh, I need to follow up on this, need to dig in more to this. Oh. So lots of interesting uh, follow-up stories coming in future months. Definitely check them out, please. A really dense report uh, and, and interesting. So. Great. Yeah. With obviously so much discussion of transmission these days, you have the federal state task force, all that work. Um looking for some legislation on this but man it's it's tough in this day and age to cite transmission it's just even your most stalwart environmentalist probably doesn't want a giant lattice tower coming through their their community you know yeah That's indeed it is a and and then the whole financing issues and permitting citing mm-hmm. local opposition it is a really fascinating and difficult um, challenge to solve. Yep. And you guys had a story about interconnections, though. Yeah, uh, kind of are, related of course, topic. Yeah. It's from Linda Daly Paulson. Great interconnection delays are impeding new rene- renewable energy projects across the nation, especially any energy storage, which is not what you want. This is based on a paper entitled energy storage interconnection bottleneck why most energy storage projects never get built use massachusetts as a case study of course a lot of this applies to the west of california um here's a quote from the paper in many states interconnection processes have not kept up with rising interest in and incentives for solar and storage resources in recent years as a result interconnection applications are increasing while interconnection authorizations lag behind we've reported on this quite a bit the you know the queues to continue growing um but the majority of the projects never get built and that leads to a lot of withdrawn applications and a lot of wasted time on interconnection studies which is one of the major um time killers in this this whole process um, the manner in which grid operators and regulators are mandating potential system impact modeling does not re- reflect reality, according to some of the speakers here. Some entities require studies evaluating peak hour charging, which is not how a battery storage facility was intended to work. They're also unrealistically tasked with modeling extreme use cases. Infrastructure upgrade costs are typically assigned to the project that triggered the upgrade, even if it benefits others. This causes a host of problems. Reforming cost allocation is a potential solution, but could mean asking questions such as whether ratepayers should be factored in and whether they derive benefits. A lack of planning for hosting capacity is another barrier. Grid operators need to plan for load, making upgrades in advance of projects entering the queue. Delays can cause the funding for projects to disappear. And yeah, this is... uh, a significant issue we see in in the California independent system operator some major reforms underway, increasing recognition of this problem. It's a little bit surprising to me sometimes that 
this process is seems to be so antiquated, you know, and really some obvious obvious uh problems with the way this is done, but um it is the way it's done now. And I guess the more we study this, the more we'll learn and maybe start working on some of these problems. Yeah, indeed. There's increasing conversation around uh, interconnection cues and the delays or just interconnection delays. Uh, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a lot of consensus on or a lot on a focus on interconnection cues specifically and streamlining, uh, speeding that process up. We'll see. Uh, certainly it's becoming more and more an issue in terms of the, the look at battery storage. Uh, Bonneville Power Administration's queue right now, or at least uh, when they came out with a state of transmission uh, update here uh, earlier this year, uh, April in April, uh, they had 122 gigawatts in their queue, uh, wow. nearly 50 gigawatts of solar, 21 gigawatts of wind, and almost 52 gigawatts of battery storage. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, battery storage, the biggest of those categories. I mean, not that much further ahead of solar. Uh, I don't know how many of that, uh, how much of that capacity is battery stored or paired with other resources. I have to imagine that's a pretty significant amount. Yeah. I forget the exact number, but same is true in California. There, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of new solar projects without storage. I've heard people in the industry people with CCA saying we're not contracting for solar unless there's storage. So that's the way it's going. Yeah. But a lot, you know, a lot of big build out that has to happen here. We're definitely and on of our course, way. as always, we'll be covering it. So stay tuned. In the meantime, yes. uh, for the last story this week, we've got Pacific Core. Red uh, took a $120 million loss in the first three months of the year due to more than $350 million in costs during that time related to the 2020 Labor Day weekend wildfires, which burned you know, almost 2,000 square miles and killed nine people in Oregon. This is according to an SEC a Securities and Exchange Commission filing by Pacific Corps owner Berkshire Hathaway. The company Pacific Corps faces numerous lawsuits in Oregon and California stemming from these wildfires, which it you know, appears the one well, or we know that started in uh, related to or were sparked by Pacific Corps equipment in uh, many, many instances. There's a uh, one of those. Lawsuits is a $1.6 billion class action lawsuit filed by victims in Multnomah County Circuit Court in Oregon. Pacific Corps is contesting, obviously, or as you would expect, is uh, fighting it, saying that it is not liable for the wildfires. Uh, yeah. So that started, that went to trial recently. And I'm sure, you know, that how that plays out will be hugely significant for Pacific Corps and also just. Uh, Liability, clarifying what kind of liabilities utilities can expect going forward mm -hmm. as we, the likelihood, uh, the risk and you know, potential consequences of wildfires grow and grow and grow in the West. Yep. And, uh, 
such a you know it's it's a tough topic we write about it a lot you have the tragic aspect of the the human life here it's just so horrific and also um not to compare it but there's a the financial impacts are significant since there's 359 million in losses from the 2020 wildfires and a 428 million dollar year over year increase in operations and maintenance costs those are huge numbers and um tough one for pacific core on that Hmm. yeah so and that's with operating revenue up year over year by 187 million yeah but those booking those wildfire related costs in the first quarter just wiped out yeah that increase in operating revenue so yeah we've seen a, a pretty sharp decline in utility related ignitions down here in the golden state you know with the PSPSs and all the work they're doing with the enhanced settings so you know the goal here is zero i assume and especially when it comes to the tragic loss of human life from this, these terrible fires yeah and that's a good point we should say note that pacific or and other utilities in the northwest and california and I, I assume across the west but i don't know uh, I have been investing millions and millions of dollars in wildfire mitigation, taking steps through policy and also, you know, equipment changes, et cetera, um, mm -hmm. putting lines underground, what have you, to reduce the risk of wildfire, uh, sparking wildfires. But, yep. and yeah, you know, we're going into another summer. Uh, hopefully it'll be a uh, less smoky one. Yeah. And in the meantime, that's all from me, Dan Catchpole. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at dcatchpole. And clearing up is at CU News Data. Great. Um, California Energy Markets is also on Twitter at CEM News Data. I'm on Twitter at Fordney Energy. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you back here next week.